0: Eddie Hampton played the trumpet. He taught himself to play the trumpet in prison. And he told me that he would sometimes, that he used to play for the cows at like five in the morning, that he would go out on the field, you know, the field gang, or who knows what his job was, or he somehow he was able to get out in the yard at five in the morning on this farm, you know, prison farm or whatever, and play for the cows which in and of itself is such a deep, like, image. Like, imagine just, I mean, this cat just, like, picking up the trumpet, doing a life bit, and, like, I'm going to play this thing, and I'm going to play for the cows. Like, that's fucking beautiful.
1: Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and in part one of my interview with jazz violinist and music educator Christian Howes, we heard the story of a young man who suddenly found himself faced with challenges that threatened his very sanity. But he had the violin and a willingness to learn from others, and in this way he not only survived, but found a deeper meaning and commitment to both music and life. Listen now to part two of my conversation with Christian House. So I, you know, I can hear this uh, sort of reevaluating where classical music works or doesn't work, didn't work in your life. But I hear a lot of anger too at it and uh, at the way it's taught. And I'm going to play amateur psychologist here. Is there a chance that you know the very system? That dropped the hammer on you the way it did, giving you no options, was the dominant society that does hold up this music as the example of the highest of art that we can create in the musical world. I mean, this is the same system that puts you in jail for a long time based on their opinion of what drugs are or what drugs aren't and how bad it is that you have drugs. And I mean, it, it is coming from the same construction, isn't it?
0: Hmm. Well, maybe, uh, but another way to go at that would be to say that, you know, I had some kind of identity crisis, (laughs) you know, or that I identified as a rebel against the system. And so then I, you know, identified with other people who were, you know, um, but I have to be very careful about not attempting to make any parallel between my experience and those of people who I can't understand fully, um, But another thing that might be more on point, or at least in terms of how I've thought about it before, I'm not saying what you're suggesting is untrue, but the way I thought about it was that, you know, in that point in my life, when I was really questioning my identity and my manhood and who I was and stuff, for many of us, we go through a process of identifying with something that's other, or that seems like other than us. We disown ourselves in some ways. We disown our backgrounds. I'm not denying that that was part of what I was going through, you know, and part of me maturing since then has been reconciling with that as well and and trying to sort through all that and saying you know um, falling in love with black music or falling in love with black culture as something that I didn't know anything about and trying to be a part of it you know trying to understand it you know that's I mean there's nothing wrong with that right but it all it also is a sensitive thing it's a very sensitive thing for me as a middle class white dude to say that I can relate to any you know I try to be very careful to say, like, I can't relate to Mm -hmm. the experience of these other men that came to prison who had, you know, that did not have the privilege that I had because I did have the privilege that I had, and I fucked that up, you know, so... um, Well,
1: but in your life now, is classical music something you're doing?
0: I still love classical music. The frustration for me has been that once I went to prison, I had a new dream for myself, which was that I could really try to participate in this, um, these other musical forms, understand them to the best of my ability, celebrate them and find a new purpose for myself as an artist and point the way for other people. And to make statement as an artist that goes beyond notes and rhythms, like the way I saw it in that moment and related to what we've been talking about, that. You know, according to this idea of this culture of education or, you know, the lack of multiculturalism in education, if you will, you know, the violin is like, I know you're big into this and you may not have thought about it this way, but I do. The violin, I think, is an archetype of the Western European canon. You think of the violin. I know it can be other symbols as well. But I think one symbol the violin is, is we think the violin, "Mm, rich people. You know, concert halls, tuxedos, proper enlightenment, the triumph of reason, and everything that goes with that. <laughs> everything that goes with it, that history. You know, now the Western European canon is a beautiful thing. Like, I got my degree in philosophy. Like, I'm, I owe a lot to it, you know, so, and I love classical music and I love all the great books, you know, so I've never disowned the music, always loved the music. I still love the music. I would be happy to play it on any given day of the week. And would enjoy the heck out of it, but here's the point. I saw this as an opportunity. At that point, I thought music is bringing me together with with you know these people in prison. It's allowing us to go deeper into sharing and understanding um, and connecting. And it struck me that that's how art should should function in our society. Um, that art artists should be leading. In terms of um, the attempt to integrate, to understand, to, you know, to go across the tracks, you know, and um, but artists are just as cowardly as everybody else. That's the fact. And the people at the universities and the teachers, the educators, they're just as ignorant and they're just as blind to their ignorance as everybody else. That's the fact I saw this as and you do hear anger in my voice. And I don't know in response to your question how much of it's misplaced, how much of it's projected, you know, maybe it is. That's fine, you know. Um but I think a big part of it is because I really latched onto this idea that I could do something that I could go out after prison and I could be a great jazz violinist and that it would compel people. But it doesn't compel people always, you know, the people that it compels more often than not is just like when I was in prison playing for a black congregation. If I go and I play for a black congregation in any church, everybody in that congregation instantly recognizes the cues, the vocabulary, the inflections, the the music, the musical language that I'm trying to speak at them in their cultural format many people are clearly surprised that a white dude with a violin can make it sound that way you know and that makes me really happy because i feel like wow, I'm connecting with these people with this music. That's building a bridge. That's making a deeper statement. But I wanted to go further than that. <laughs> you know what I wanted? I wanted to be, because because if 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 the violin can kind of cross out of this archetype and can kind of celebrate this other kind of music in a deep way, I wanted it to make a deeper statement about, Um, I don't know. I'm not sure that I can articulate it, but it has to do with, it has to do with our presumptions and pretense about knowledge about, you know, this hierarchy of beauty in the world. And then it's a bunch of bullshit. And it's still to this day, I'm confronted constantly by people at the top conservatories, top conductors who still are hanging on to this ignorance and blindness. Um, and just they're just they're not interested.
1: I think the uh, the pressing need, as I see it, this is my opinion, is our society is in great need of fundamental renewal in some way, whether it's the renewal of the imagination, the human spirit, something that's going to give us a sense that, you know, we can be noble again. I remember Walter Mosley, the writer, uh, African American writer. Somebody said, you know, what, what would you really like, you know, if you had your choice? And he said, I'd like to live in a great nation. I mean, the very idea that a nation could be great or that a people could be noble. There's something we know we're letting slip. It's getting away from us. And you have this idea of, uh, and I'm going to butcher this, but it's uh, Einstein essentially saying the mind that creates the problem is never the mind that can fix the problem. Right. Something else has to occur. And I think we look to things that are often marginalized, that are on the edges that in fact, in the lowly comes this possibility of renewal, a new way of uh, of seeing our way forward. And classical music, as well as other forms that we have that we have trusted in to Solve the problems we're in. You know, I watch C-SPAN and I see these generals and God knows, you know, they've paid dues and they're knowledgeable guys and, you know, but I see all the ribbons on their chest and everything and they're up there saying, oh, I can fix this and I, you know, I'll deal with ISIS and I know or, you know, we'll do the best we can. And I don't want to be so simplistic, but I also know that somehow it's that very consciousness that has kind of got us here to start with. This is, I think, a lot of people dealing with the environmental movement. I kind of feel this way. You know, we keep coming back to these rational approaches and solutions. as if we just, you know, if we just follow this long enough, we're going to fix it. We're, it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> so I've really gone all the way around the barn with this. But uh, i now want to relate it back to the music. I mean, I think there's something really essential. We talked earlier about Joseph Campbell and the uh, the hero with a thousand faces and you know the first step of the in, in the hero's path is is going into the subterranean world and what happens in that is he acquires this thing of great value right it's very dangerous and he may not acquire it but he has to go there to acquire it it's not going to be found on the shelf at home he has to go into this place to find it and uh and then he has to and then he comes back, and his second great challenge of life is, how can he share it? How can he have people understand that he has found this thing hmm. that is of real value. And when the rest of the world looks in and says, "Well, what's that? I've never seen anything like it. I'm not that interested.
0: Well, I appreciate that that gives me a little a little bit of encouragement um and yeah, I don't want to sound you know angry necessarily. Um, <laughs> but, you know, clearly that's become a part of my mission as an educator and all these lessons that I took from prison have really stuck with me. in in terms of the work I do in education today, and really my mission is to transform music education because I see that music education is very deeply segregated. I see that you have this classical music education world, And then you have something now that people are calling the jazz studies paradigm, which itself is very segregated as well. But then you have the participatory culture and various different segments of the participatory culture. The folk filling world is one of those worlds, but also the musical world of the black church is another, you know, and and I really feel like the academy, if you will, the, the classical music academy I want to believe that they're smart. <laughs> you know, I want to believe that they're trying to do the right thing. And I feel like the right thing is for them to push their own boundaries and try to find a way to, to be more holistic and more integrated in seeking out the skills and the knowledge that they're missing. you know. Um,
1: We're wondering uh, or challenging the concept of what is this whole exercise about? Yeah, because if the exercise is about creating excellence and boy right. have we held that up and put it on an altar excellence is the beginning and end the alpha and omega and I don't think that that's that's the whole I don't think that's what the exercise should be I think music of course music saved my life when I was at a point in a point in my life in my 20s it saved my life it was the thing I grabbed hold of to kind of find my way through the dark forest, as it were, you know, speaking mythologically. I think it's about love. I think it's about it has the capacity to connect us to something much bigger than us. And I think it has in it love and a way to deal with pain that we have to have. So excellence by itself no longer interests me, even though I I appreciate it. I mean, I must admit, when I hear somebody can just... Play this amazing piece of music, and and uh, sort of lift me up into the music of the spheres. But then ten minutes later, you know, I, did anything really happen? I maybe that's just how I feel about it. I
0: I agree with you, and but it's also the criterion by which we judge excellence. You know, because judging Itzhak Perlman as excellent, there's no question that Itzhak Perlman is, Perlman is excellent. The problem I have with With um, holding Itzhak Perlman's excellence up at this higher pedestal than Duke Ellington or Bruce Molsky, for that matter, or you know, is we're just missing so much. You know, we're looking out this one little tiny window in the world, and behind our back is like this huge, this huge other vista that we're just missing. Um,
2: Who
1: was the guy that played the trumpet? You were telling me tell that story. Cause I think that brings into specifics what you're talking about.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, there were, you know, there were musicians that I would, um, we had like an ad hoc band, even in London, even where we could only play outside. And occasionally we'd go into a little tiny rundown room in the gym and we could rehearsal kind of rehearse, you know, um, it wasn't anything like the wardens band for the, you know, before where, right, and this where, we where you're
1: had, in the big dormitory where Exactly.
0: Exactly. And, um, And I just kind of, you know, met these random guys around the prison that played music and just developed friendships with them and stuff. And so there are a couple um, people that I came in touch with, um, you know, um, Eddie Hampton. Hamp, as he was known, was one of them. Eddie Hampton, if I'm if I remember correctly, was about 45 years old at the time and had been locked up for 26 years at the time. From some maybe a double murder of some police when he was 19 in Cincinnati. I'm not sure about that, but I think it was something like that. He was definitely doing a life bit on some kind of murder charge. Um, so Eddie Hampton um, was tall, cut, big, strong, very but very cut, very ripped, very, you know, well put together in his prison blues, of course. You know, but he always had his fade, you know, well done and stuff. He was a veteran. I mean, he'd been locked up 26 years, so he knew how to do his bit. He had his way of getting through, you know. And obviously, during those 26 years, who knows all the phases that Eddie Hampton went through in those 26 years? Who knows the ups and incredible downs that he went through? You know, can you imagine the kind of downs he must have went through doing that life sentence, you know? Just in those 26 years, getting to that point where I met him. But Eddie Hampton had, you know, the thing about a medium security prison that a lot of people don't realize, I think a medium security prison, in some ways, is the most dangerous prison to be in. Because in a maximum security prison, think about it, you've got more security. (laughs) You've got more protection. You've got less freedom, right? The thing is, in a medium security prison, there's less security But you still got all of the most, you know, a lot of the most dangerous criminals are still there. So what happens is somebody like Eddie Hampton, he does 10 years or 15 years in a max joint. And then they say, okay, we're moving you down to the medium to do the rest of your your life bit. At some point, he might even move down to a minimum when he gets to be in his 60s or something like that, right? So anyway, or at least he'll do the rest of his bit in a medium joint. So you've got all the every kind of offender you could imagine in medium security and more shit can jump off because there's less security. Um, So anyway, Eddie Hampton played the trumpet. He taught himself to play the trumpet in prison. And he told me that he would sometimes that he used to play for the cows at like five in the morning that he would go out on the field, you know, the field gang or Who knows what his job was or somehow he was able to get out in the yard at 5 in the morning on this farm, you know, prison farm or whatever and play for the cows, which in and of itself is such a deep, like, image. Imagine just, I mean, this cat just, like, picking up the trumpet, doing a life bit and, like, I'm going to play this thing and I'm going to play for the cows. Like, that's fucking beautiful. (laughs) You know, it was like, you know, a conversation like that with Eddie Hampton, when I would reflect on it later, I was like, that's so heavy. Like, it's so heavy. Like, me coming from this, like, again, this, like, where I came from, the background of all the elite, young, classical violinists being groomed for greatness, you know. (laughs) And, And here I am talking with this, you know what do they call it? You know, like a three time loser or whatever, you know, it's like this, this idea of this guy who had came from poverty, had no education, probably dropped out of high school, could barely read or write if at all. Um, but like, I would just go walk around the yard with Eddie Hampton. And sometimes we would play a little bit of music together and I'd hear stuff come out of his horn. And I was like, man, that is so beautiful. What is it about what's coming out of his horn right now? That's so beautiful. Cause it doesn't make sense. Like he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just like grasping for stuff. You know what I mean? But like he had found a voice. Like he he was compelling. He was compelling with that trumpet. And in the same way, like we'd walk around the yard and he'd just be talking to me. And we'd just be talking about whatever. And I just had this feeling like I'm just learning so much from this man. Like this man has so much wisdom to offer. Like in some cause the thing about when you go to prison too, you gotta realize that like time stops. If you go to prison when you're 19, you stay 19. Part of you stays 19. But also, in this paradoxical way, you also age way faster. So Eddie Hampton was really like a 19-year-old boy in a way, but he was also like a 75-year-old man in another way. Cuz and I think it's because he's, you know, how many nights was he laying in this cell staring at a wall? And what kind of, you know, what kind of suffering was he going through? And and how was that just like chiseling this deeper like wisdom and this deeper maturity in one way, but he missed so much from the outside world. He's still 19. You know what I mean? So it's kind of a deep thing. I definitely felt it though. I definitely felt when I came out later, like I was, you know, I had, I had missed for four years and I was like, you know, I was like four years younger and needed to catch up four years. But on the other hand that I was like way ahead of my peers in some ways because of the things I'd learned. So, but that was Eddie Hampton. And again, it was about me questioning where wisdom comes from, where beauty comes from, where truth comes from, what, what constitutes knowledge. And all of that was embodied for me in a relationship with Eddie Hampton and other musicians that I met in there. And the experiences of playing music in completely different cultural contexts, whether I was playing with these, you know, Aryans in a bluegrass band and really getting into their world and, and hearing that music in that context with those human beings and just just even glimpsing into their worldview and their parrot you know. Um, or playing in church, you know, with these black gospel singers and you know christians and and experiencing that or playing with eddie hampton on the yard or veto um tony freeman aka Vito, who was a guy who had been locked up maybe three four five times and he came to me and he said yo man i want to learn to play the saxophone i'm getting a saxophone in will you teach me how to play saxophone and literally i taught him how to play the saxophone i have no idea how to play saxophone <laughs> I've never ever even blown on a saxophone <laughs> to this day, but I swear to you I taught Tony Freeman how to play saxophone. <laughs> and <laughs> that's great. And occasionally, you know, and he had this little book and I was just like, "Yeah, just do it." I, I don't remember everything we did, but but literally I taught him to play saxophone and he got really good. We would work every day in the yard and I would teach him to play sax, you know, and then and then we started writing music together. And I actually, one of the tunes I, I recorded on my first album called Ten Yard, which is all music that I had composed in prison, is called Vito's Melody. And it was Vito's Melody, and I, and I made a song out of it. And we would play in the, in the yard. I would, and I would just have my box guitar a lot of times. And I would be teaching him. But again, the reason I would spend two hours a day with Vito in the yard, I was getting something deeper from that experience than just giving free lessons for occasional, you know, bad Little Debbie pastry. Cause occasionally he'd throw me a little Debbie. Here's a little Debbie. Thanks for the lesson, you know, but you know, it was the connection that I made with Vito. It was the sense that I was accepted by Tony, you know, that he accepted me like almost as a brother, you know, that I could be this, you know, white boy from this other planet and that this dude would actually bestow kind of his blessing on me or, you know, and it was also that I was learning from him and, uh, and there was all those things that helped me survive through prison because, you know, these relationships I had and the fact that people valued me in there um, for ostensibly for, again, you know, that I could teach them something, that I could offer them something. But at a certain point, it became a real bond that we had. It became a real connection. And uh, that protected me because, you know, if if other um, Aryans saw that I was hanging out with a lot of black guys and, Therefore, they may have been resentful towards me, or even antagonistic towards me. Um, But then the guys that I played in the in the bluegrass band would say, "No, no, no, that's our fiddle player. Don't mess with him." And you know, his fingers. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and then the black guys, they just didn't like me because I was just white, (laughs) you know. And and other, you know, or just young and white, and they're gonna, you know, a lot of, you know, they're just gonna. You know, there's a lot of this racial tension, and you know, just power dynamics in prison, obviously. And uh, but a lot of them would just leave me alone because they knew that I was Eddie Hampton's boy, and I wasn't Eddie Hampton's bitch, but I was his boy. I was his, you know, I was his, I was his people. You know, I was his friend. I was somebody that was that was protected. Don't mess with him. So, uh, yeah.
1: Let's listen now to Chris perform his own composition on the violin titled American Spirit. So you uh finally get out of prison. What was that like how' that What was that day like?
0: Well, it was amazing um surreal um incredible you know um to see my family at that point, I had realized how much I valued my family and uh at that point, I really had a sense of um, my purpose and what I, I knew what I wanted to do that I wanted to. Not take life for granted, <laughs> you know not waste time that I wanted to um fight for a good life, you know um and um, uh, I had an idea about what that meant as as an artist, but also as a man, you know, somebody connected to a family um and in your family, where are
1: you in the birth order are you old well, I
0: was the oldest yeah, of four. And so my three younger siblings were um, were all looking forward to seeing me. And I wanted to be there for them. And I didn't want my parents to be stressed out anymore or have that burden. And um, so I was very much a different person when I got out of prison. But there was a lot of negative things, too, you know. Um, I mean, I had kind um, of—I had adapted the penitentiary into who I was, you know, in a lot of ways it's 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 not black and white, like it's not like you know <laughs> like a lot of it did rub off on me, and after two or three years of um, being there, I started to be very um aggressive, even um, I started to be one of the people that would stare other people down, <laughs> you know, make them look away walking around the prison yard, you know. I mean, going in there at first, I was very vulnerable. But over four years, I became, part of me became kind of a monster, you know. I was very, um, I don't know, probably PTSD, I guess. I realized many, many years later, that's probably what I was dealing with. So, for example, if I was walking down the street after I got out of the joint and someone happened to bump into me, like I would instantly, my reflex would be like you know, radars up, you know, sirens blaring in my head. It's like, do I need to punch this motherfucker or whatever? You know, it's like you just, like, you develop a whole different sense of everything once you're in the joint.
1: Where did the music play a role in that then? How did the music help you deal with that? Because I I wonder about that. There is a fellow that uh, I hope to talk to soon who made violins when he was uh, in the military and he was uh, stationed in Kuwait, he served in Kuwait during the first war, and I think he he served in, uh, in Iraq during that war. And his way of dealing with it was to make violins. So people find ways of coping, some way to try mm. to deal with this. Did the did your music play a role in that as you were dealing with this anger and this conditioned response?
0: Yeah, I I guess looking back, I didn't realize then <laughs> what I was going through. I realize it now, you know. But I, but I guess looking back, probably the music did help me to deal with all the feelings I had. The other thing that helped me was that I channeled my fear of going back, my desire to overcome the, the shame and the humiliation, um, sense of desperation. I channeled all that into a lot, like a lot of drive. And I had been doing that for four years in prison off and on when I could, when I didn't fall into depression, when I didn't act out, when I didn't cop out, tune out, act out. It had been a struggle. It had been a discipline I had been developing for four years in prison, getting up every day and saying, how can I fight to make the most of this day to be the best I can be? Very different than how I was acting in college, you know. So getting out of prison, I really wanted to take that chance and I wanted to prove to the world that I could be somebody, overcome this fall. And I set about with everything I had, all the energy I had pretty much every day to fight for this idea that I had been generating for four years, that I was going to be A jazz violinist, that I was gonna play with my heroes, that I was gonna play on the highest level that I could, that I was gonna make an important contribution to the field, to the conversation of jazz as a violinist, and that that contribution was gonna go beyond just the surface level of the music, that it was gonna make a deeper statement about culture. So, one way I did this was by being entrepreneurial. Because there was no way to sign up for a job as a jazz violinist.
1: Also as an ex-con. There's so many, I mean, so many people come out of the penitentiary and it's so difficult for them to get anywhere. So here you're going to have to make it, you're going to have it happen on your own terms.
0: Yeah, it's true. Although I don't want to pretend that I still wasn't like a guy who had a lot of resources and support, you know, from a family and a community, teachers, people, people. At the university, Ohio State University reinstated my fourth year of my full scholarship after, you know, i had three years of scholarship before I went to prison. I did the four years in prison. I came back and Ohio State said, we'll give you the fourth year. You can still have your fourth year of your full scholarship. So I've got to say I'm very grateful to not only my family but many people in the community who really have my back, who really believed in me when they didn't even necessarily have a reason to do so, you know. So I'm just saying I had more opportunity than the guys I know in the joint, (laughs) you know, but absolutely there were odd, you know, there was a lot of things stacked against me at the same time, um, obstacles that I had to overcome, but I just saw it as I'm going to, you know, I'm going to learn how to do this and I asked my parents and they taught me their whole entrepreneurial thing. And they showed me how to build a business. Didn't have any, you know, Regardless of whether it's a music business, they they showed me how to go out and sell myself, and wrap my brain around what that meant. And uh, I established my career that way. I just I just chased every opportunity I possibly could, and I tried. I think that I had my head really on straight at that point. I think people recognized that they knew that I was I was all about business. I was all I was going to show up for the gig, and I was going to do my best at everything. And I did do my best at everything. I hustled really, really hard. And I've been hustling ever since then. I'm still hustling today. I hustle really hard. I work really, really hard (laughs) at my business. Um,
1: Who are some of the guys you got to play with?
0: Played with Les Paul for 10 years until he died. Played at his funeral. Toured with Bill Evans, the saxophonist. Played on uh, a Grammy-nominated record for Daphnis Prieto, the MacArthur Award winner from Cuba. Play with many great musicians in a surprisingly wide range of genres that I think most people would be really surprised to, to consider the range of, of types of music that I've played considering it's been at such a high level with these different players. And um, then it grew into... Um, for many reasons, including being a parent and including for entrepreneurial reasons, it grew into developing my business model as a producer but also as an educator. So for many years now, I've been developing my work as an educator, not just as a performing artist and a composer, but an educator. So now I see that a really, really important part of what I'm doing is in um, is in teaching, but not just teaching people to play music, but in my attempt to really, I want to transform music education. I want to impact the change of the culture in music education, and through that, the change of culture of of arts and you know culture in general. In one way, I feel like embarrassed that. 20 years following my release, it's still such a part of my story. It's still such a part of who I am, still hanging on to it. But in another way, I feel like these are the lessons that I learned. They're the things that I've stuck with, and they still resonate for me. And as I continue to grow, I may change as a person, and these lessons may morph, but they're still something... They they become a part of who I am. And it's 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 a part of my mission. It probably always will be, and so I'm and I'm fine with that.
1: That's great. Tell me about the first good violin that came into your life and what where it went and how it how it went through all this.
0: I think the first the best you know the first good violin I got was maybe a year or two before I went to prison. My teacher Michael Davis at Ohio State. He said I've got a hold of this. You know, really good violin, one of my past students is selling it, it's a good deal, it's $2,000, it's a really good violin, you should buy it, it's a, good, it's a good opportunity. Which, it was a step up for me, but for many classical violinists, $2,000 doesn't even get close. You know, you got to spend 20 before you're even serious for a lot of these symphony players. So I bought that violin, and then that was the violin that I played in prison. Um, and that was the violin I had since so I got out of prison. It's the violin I still play today. Even if I had $20,000, I don't think I'd buy a $20,000 violin. I think I'd still play this violin.
1: Tell me about the violin. Who? Where's it come from? What's it made? Do you know much about it?
0: You know, I think it's a German copy of a French make. Uh, it says Farney on the inside. Someone told me it was probably a copy of Henry Farney, a copy of... Um, of a French violin, but made by German. It's a decent violin. Maybe, maybe it would be worth up to $5,000 today. But for me, it's about how it feels, how it plays, how it sounds to me. And as you know, that whole, the question of the value of violin is a little bit nebulous. You know, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing to consider violin as a, as a collector's piece or a violin as a tool to make art. You know, so I think of, I like my violin. I think uh, people get a little bit too up in arms about spending so much money on violins, and that, but that's just my humble opinion. So I don't judge anybody else for how they how they handle that question.
1: But this violin went through through all that with you. I mean, it's like a friend.
0: Yeah, it is. It's you know, it's my sound that I get from that violin. It's the violin I feel comfortable with. I've created literally created the grooves and the. And the fingerboard with my fingers they fit my fingers you know people i mean a long time ago i thought maybe i thought i want to be the best jazz violinist in the world someday but i don't think that anymore and it's a really big deal to me to not try to be the best <laughs> because i think it's just a flawed concept and it's just unhealthy <laughs> cuz there's always people that can do something better than you and you know um but I know that for me, what I want to do is I want to be able to make a contribution to the, to the discourse and in the music that's through recordings and it's through, you know, performances. That's how you make it for you. It's through books and through lectures and articles. Um, for me, it's through recordings and performances I mean, I had people that told me I should get my doctorate in philosophy and I could have a much better existence as a tenured professor and, you know, publish on the topic of jazz, philosophy of jazz or something. And I, and I thought about it and I said, no, I'm a, I'm a violinist. That's, that's where I'm going to make my mark. All these other things I do want to do, I write blogs, I teach, I do all these other things. At the end of the day, the thing that I am is I'm a violinist and I'm a, I'm a creative violinist. It means I improvise and I compose my own music. Sometimes I play a lot of different styles of music, and, and I have a unique sound. I have my own sound. So that's how to. What defines for me success is when people come to me and say, "I can just hear two notes, and I know it's Chris House." And I think I have a sound. I have my own sound. I'm like. I finally have arrived and proved that assumption wrong that I had at 16. And I'm like Noah Phipps, that kid that made his own music with that four track player. And that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to have my own sound, create my own thing, create my own music that somebody would appreciate. Not everybody. <laughs> Not everybody has to appreciate it, but somebody. A small percentage of people in the world hear my music, and it makes them really, really happy. That, for me, is awesome. Perfect.
1: We're going to end there. I don't think we could end it any other way. Thank you, Chris.
0: Thank you, Joe. Thanks for making it happen, man. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and for links to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And let me leave you now with a quote from the English writer A.C. Benson. I wonder why we suffer so strangely, to bring out something in us. I try to believe which can't be brought out in any other way.